Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Game of Thrones, The Reign of David. This series looks at the reign of David in the books of 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles to learn from David's victories and failures to see how we can walk more closely with Jesus. Today we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 6. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's a rather lengthy passage, um, but it's a very important story and a very uh, unusual story as we, uh, as we read along it, and then we'll try to to see uh, what we think God is speaking to us through this. So 2 Samuel chapter 6, it's there in the booklet in front of you. I'll be using the New International Version. It's also going to be on the screens up here. And then we'll kind of step our way through the text uh, to talk about it. So 2 Samuel chapter 6, hear now the words of the holy God. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Baalah of Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the Ark. They set the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with songs and with harps and lyres and tambourines, sistrums and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. And therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. By the way, that in Hebrew means breaking out against Uzzah. That's why it's named that. Verse 9. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of God, of the Lord, ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained there in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now, King David was told, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. And David, wearing a linen ephah, danced before the Lord with all his might. While he and his entire, the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. And after he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler of the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held 
and honor. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. This is the word of the Lord. How many of you remember the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark? Okay, you remember there's the famous scene in there where they're after, and it's the Lost Ark because it's this Ark we're reading about. And you remember through the whole movie, Indiana Jones and the Nazis are both trying to get the Ark, and when the Nazis get it, they take it because they're thinking they're going to get it and they're going to use its power. They're going to manipulate it and get its power to work in their behalf to allow the Nazis to win World War II. But of course, when they actually get it, these Nazi characters that we, did, did anybody like those guys in the movie? I mean, nobody likes them, right? So when they get the Ark and they open it up, what happens to them? Right, they all melt, they're all consumed there, and everybody said, that's so sad, right? Was that, was that your response? Or did we cheer and say, yes, they got what was coming to them? See, everybody liked it in the Raiders of the Lost Ark when the bad guys looked into the Ark and they got what we thought was coming to them. But how many of you had a little bit different reaction as we just read 2 Samuel chapter 6? And Uzzah just touched that ark, and he got destroyed on the spot. Just like Spielberg showed in the movie. He gets destroyed and wiped out on the spot. What in the world is this chapter about? Why is this going on? How could God do this? Now, I want to begin by admitting, this is a hard text, guys. I kidded with Jer last week. I walked in and I told Jer he's actually preaching at another church this morning. I said, look, you hadn't had a chance to preach this week, so I was thinking I would just call you up and you could explain why God destroyed Uzzah on the spot. Something easy for you to jump back in, right? This is not an easy text. In fact, I said, if, if I wasn't preaching through 2 Samuel, this is the kind of Bible passage that people just avoid. They don't want to deal with because it's not easy. What in the world is going on? on. That's what we want to try and unpack over the next uh, little bit over half an hour. Now, the first thing to understand here is that we're getting in this text is there is a terror of God's holy presence. David is bringing the ark to Jerusalem, and this is a good and a right thing. The problem is not that he's bringing the ark. In fact, Along with 2 Samuel 6, you can read 1 Chronicles 13 to 16, and it tells the same story and actually gives a little bit more information. Uh, as you can tell, it's three chapters long. And there, we're told why David does this. In 1 Chronicles 13, verses 3 and 4, David says, Let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we did not inquire of it, or we weren't seeking God via his ark during the reign of Saul. And the whole assembly agreed to do this because it seemed right to all the people. They're reminding us that the ark of God had been neglected for years. It had been the, the locus of God's presence for Israel for years. But way back in 1 Samuel, when we started this series a long time ago, uh, if you remember the ark of God, they carried it out to battle because they kind of thought it was like a lucky box. It was a rabbit's foot. And they'd carry it out to battle and that meant they were going to win. But did it work that way? No, God was not with his people because they were not walking with him and therefore they got routed and actually the Philistines picked up the ark of God and carried it off. But that didn't work well for the Philistines. The Philistines were actually having problems. They were getting sick and in fact their gods were all being judged and destroyed everywhere they put the ark. So after a little period of time, the Philistines said, this, this thing's bad news. We don't want this. So they put it on an ox cart with some oxen pulling it, and they sent it off, and it had gone back to Israel. And David now has defeated the Philistines, and he's undoing everything that Saul never did do right. And Saul had lost to the Philistines. David wins. Saul had never brought the ark of God back to be with him as the king ought to have done. Uh, but David now says to the people, we ought to bring the ark of God to the capital so we can always seek God. And so David's being shown here is better than Saul. The problem is not bringing the ark back. That's the good and right thing to do. This is how they are to inquire of the Lord. And he wants that presence near him. 
And so as the chapter begins, of course, there's a joyful celebration going on. We read there in verse 5 that David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord. They're, they're singing and they're dancing. There is, in essence, a party going on because we have been for years oppressed by the Philistines, but we are putting them down now, and the ark of God is being brought back to us. We are going to have God's presence with us. This is a great day to rejoice. And let's be honest, why not? I mean, if we knew that we're going to do this and God is going to be with us, people would celebrate because that's what we want to believe is that God is on our side. And so the story is not unusual to that point. But then joy turns to terror in a moment. In verses 6 and 7, we read that as they're going along, Uzzah reaches out his hand and takes hold of the ark of God because the oxen had stumbled. And so, so picture what's going on here. They're walking along. They got one guy in front of the oxen and one guy, Uzzah, is behind the oxen in the cart on which the ark is. And as they're walking, the roads are not like our roads, remember? They're just, you know, uneven roads. And so it hits an uneven spot. The ark looks like it's going to fall off. And Uzzah thinks and says, this is bad. The ark of God should not fall into the mud where the oxen have just walked. This should not be. So he reaches out and he grabs a hold of the ark to just steady it so that it doesn't fall. And the text is really clear there. Notice in verse 7, the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. And so God struck him down. So we can't answer this and say, well, just something else weird happened at the moment. The text is clear. No, Uzzah was irreverent. What he did was wrong. And God was angry and God struck him down. Now, before we try and understand this, let's be honest. Notice the very next verses tell us David, the man after God's own heart. How does David respond? David, in verse 8, we're told, was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And we're told in verse 9, David was afraid of the Lord that day. David, for the first time, is afraid of Yahweh. And he says, how can the ark of God ever come to me? Let's be honest. How many of you say, I like David's questions? Okay, this side's being religious. Let's go over here. How many of you like David's questions? And say, if I was there, I would have the same question. I mean, the guy stopping the ark from falling into the mud. It seems like a reasonable act to me. Why would God be doing this? And might be a little bit afraid of it. What in the world is happening? Well, the reason we don't understand what's going on here is we don't really understand the terror of God's holy presence. What's happening is, first off, it's right to bring the ark back, but they're not even doing it the way they're supposed to do it. The ark in the first place wasn't supposed to be being pulled on a cart by a bunch of oxen. Notice in verse 3, we're told they had set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab. Well, God had told them, I won't put all these verses up, but if you go back to the book of Numbers, God told them, here's how you're to handle the ark. Nobody can touch the ark. If you touch the ark, it's going to be death to you. I'm warning you now. So here's what you do. There's some rings on the side. You put these poles through the rings, and then Levites are to put the, ark, the poles on their shoulders and carry the ark of God. Nothing about having it pulled by oxen. Where in the world did David get such an idea? From the Philistines, which might not be the best place to get the idea of how one's supposed to come into the presence of God and deal with the holy ark of God. The Philistines, we were told, had done it exactly this way. You can go back and read that in 1 Samuel 6. And David, in essence, rather than seeking God, and in 1 Chronicles he admits, here's why we got in trouble. We didn't seek the Lord about how to do this, so we didn't have the Levites do it. We just did it the way the Philistines did it. David seeking the way the world did things. He followed the way of pagans, and that's the first step that's going to get them in trouble. And it is important for us, before we move on, because that still doesn't explain why this happened, 
But it is really important for us to understand this. Whenever God's people follow the ways of the world rather than the ways of God, disaster is sure to follow. Okay? Where do we determine how God wants us to behave and what God wants us to do? Is it the latest Gallup poll? No. That's not how we determine. Is it what's going on on the news? No. You see, God, God had already revealed to them in the scripture how they were supposed to do this. But David, not unlike many in the church ever since then, are tempted to just say, well, let's just do it the way they're doing it. And it didn't actually work for the Philistines, and it was even worse for David and them. So that's the first problem. And the reason this is important is the ark is the very presence of God. Notice in verse 2, the writer goes out of his way to, to emphasize this for us. He speaks of the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. It's really extremely repetitive in the Hebrew when you sit there and read it. And he's trying to point out that, look, here's what's going on. These people are acting like this thing is some kind of a magic box. They're acting like it's the world's largest rabbit foot. And it's going to be some, some little toy that they can use and they can have there. But that's not what this ark is. The ark is actually the holiest place in all of the created order. This is where the holy God localizes his presence in the midst of human beings. And so we're told that this ark is the ark of the Lord of armies. You remember when we looked at, at David, why he was successful? It was because the Lord God of armies, the Lord Sabaoth, uh, as, as Luther put it in uh, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. That's the same title that's used here. The Lord God of armies. This God has his presence dwell there with this ark. Right there in that spot between the cherubim is the holy presence of God. This is the holiest place in the entire created order. It bore the unutterable name of God and the manifest presence of Yahweh himself. And so this is why God had instructed them, when you come near this ark, you need to pay attention to what you're doing. Only Levites can touch any of the holy articles, and they are not allowed to directly handle them. They have to be wrapped up first. No one is allowed to look into the ark. When it had come back from the Philistines, some Israelites had tried that. They had opened up the ark, which is actually where the scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark comes. When they opened up the ark, it looked exactly like what happened in Indiana Jones. They all got destroyed. And everybody knew this. The Philistines had violated it. The Israelites had violated it. But God had told them, look, the ark of God is holy. It's to be put inside the holy of holies. And only the high priest is even allowed to approach it. He only does that once a year when he brings in the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. Other than that, do not touch the ark of God. And they all knew this. They knew what had happened to the Philistines. They knew what God's word was. They knew what had happened to the people of Israel down in Beth Shemesh when they had violated that. And still, they decided it to do this way. But let's be honest. We might say, okay, they should have had the Levites carry it. They shouldn't have had it on the ark. But that was David's doing. Uzzah, though, poor Uzzah. I mean, all he's doing is stopping the ark from falling into the mud. What's the problem? See, here's the problem. Uzzah made the same mistake you and I do. Uzzah thought what was unholy was mud. What was unholy was Uzzah. Mud is just dirt and water that's obeying every word of God, doing exactly what it was made to do. Uzzah, on the other hand, just like you and I, 
is guilty of cosmic treason, is guilty of sin and rebellion against God. In reality, it's not mud that was going to sully the ark. It was the very touch of a human being. What was unholy was not mud, but rather Uzzah himself. See, we think mud and the created order is a problem, but somehow our sin is not. And so like him, we are disastrously wrong. Because the created order is not a problem. It does what God tells it to do. We humans alone are guilty of rebelling against God. We alone are guilty of treason on a cosmic scale. We are the ones who are actually unholy and full of sin. And so the problem is that a sinful human dare not touch the naked, unmediated holiness of God. Because when sin comes into God's unmediated presence, it always results in death. Always. It's why God had warned them. It's what he had told them. And I want you to notice here, here's the thing that we Americans really don't like. It doesn't even matter if their motives were sincere. Was David sincere in bringing the ark up? Yes. Was Israel sincere in wanting it there? Are they sincerely dancing and playing and worshiping? Yes. Is Uzzah sincere in thinking, I don't want the ark to fall in the mud? Yes. Did any of that make any difference? No. Sincerely wrong is just wrong with greater intensity. That's all it is. And they were sincerely wrong thinking that human beings in an unmediated manner can simply reach out and touch God's holiness. And they think that that's going to bring blessing. It's not going to bring blessing. It's going to bring the same thing that happened in Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is instant destruction. Now, as a result of this, one might think, which David actually did, if that's the way it is, then I just want to stay far away from the ark. Right? But see, here's the problem. God's presence, because it's holy, is a terror. But God's presence is also the only source of blessing. And so there's a blessing that goes on. And notice what David does in verse 10. David, in verses 10 and 11, we're told he's not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be within the city of David. Instead, he takes it to the house of Obed-Edom. Now, let's be honest. What if you're Obed-Edom and you look out the window, and here comes David with the ark, and nobody's dancing anymore. You'd heard all the dancing going on, then all of a sudden you heard this loud crack, boom. Nobody's dancing, everybody's crying, and David comes up and says, uh, I'm going to drop this off at your house. See, this is where I say, yeah, I don't think so, David. Thanks for the gift, right? I mean, be honest, that, that, that's... I. I you don't want it because you're afraid of it, but now you're telling me to take it. Thanks a lot, David. But Obed-Edom, probably because he doesn't have a whole lot of choice, takes the ark, and he keeps it in his house, and he's learned, don't touch the ark. Don't stretch your hands out. Don't get curious. Don't look into it. Don't do any of that. Have God's presence with you, but don't think you somehow manipulate it. You somehow are in control. This thing is not a rabbit's foot. This is the holy presence of God. And so a strange thing happens. In verse 11, we're told the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom for three months. And the Lord, Yahweh, blesses him and his entire house. Everything in contact with Obed-Edom is suddenly under blessing. Because the holy presence of God brings blessing along with it. Now, David, having had three months, starts to think about this. And we're told in verse uh, 12, David's told, yeah, look, okay, we did have the whole Uzzah thing, but Obed-Edom is getting blessed like mad down there. And so David says, okay, we're going to go down and we're going to bring the ark of God up and do it. Now, if you read in First Chronicles, we're told, this is where David says, okay, we've been doing some studies since then, and we've learned the Levites are supposed to do this. 
we're going to do this the right way. So we're going to get the Levites. We're going to we're going to carry the ark up the way we're supposed to because David knows that the blessing of God is so important. One's got to do whatever's necessary to get into God's presence. It's not going to say, I just want to stay away from it. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. In C.S. Lewis's phrase, Aslan's not tame. He's, he's a lion. But he's a lion where the blessing resides. So you got to learn to be able to come into his presence. So David decides he's going to do this. But notice here what's really interesting then is we're told in verse 13 what they do. At verse 13 and 17, this is also in 1 Chronicles 15, by the way, uh, verse 26 and 27. We're told when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. And then they go on and they get the ark back up. And in verse 17, we're told they brought the ark of the Lord, set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. So this time David's doing it according to the law. But nonetheless, the Levites get the ark up on their, they get the poles on their shoulders. They take six steps. And what does David realize ought to be done? Sacrifice. Because we are still dealing with the holy presence of God. And as we painfully learned with Uzzah, we're not holy. And so if we're going to be here, we are going to begin and we are going to end with the sacrifice. And notice, this isn't sacrifice of burning some little, you know, grain or something else. This is blood sacrifice. We are going to begin and end with blood sacrifice because David has learned sincerity does not cover your sin. Zeal does not atone for your sin. Only blood removes sin. And once again, David could have known this because God had told them that hundreds of years before. They knew the story of coming out of Egypt, how they'd come out by the Passover lamb, and God had told them only blood atones for sin. And friends, the only way we sinful human beings can receive the blessings of God's holy presence is through the blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God. The reason we celebrate Christ, the reason we sing about His blood is not that we just like blood. It's because we would be destroyed in the holy presence of God except for the fact that Jesus Christ's blood has been shed once and for all, and so we are now free to enter into the presence of God. And David, in a type and a shadow way, has finally figured that out. And so they start with blood, and they end with blood, because David has figured this is the only way into the presence of God. The path to the blessing of God can only be laid out when our sin is removed by the sacrifice of blood. And the fulfillment of God's promises is by the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now notice what happens then, we're told is, now worship ensues. And this worship's not interrupted. In verses 14 and 15, we're told David's wearing the linen ephod and he danced before the Lord. We've probably all heard this before, you know, where, where David danced in Jehovah's sight. It comes from this passage here. David is dancing and the entire house of Israel is bringing up the ark with shouts and sound of trumpets because what's happened now is now the presence of God is a source of blessing rather than terror. Rather than being death, it is life to them. And so the response out of that is worship because when a human being finds God's favor because of the blood, because specifically of the blood of Christ, the only reasonable response is the abandonment of joyful worship. The reason that I like to worship God is not because I fancy myself a singer. If you've ever heard me, you know that that's not the case, right? Why do I like to do it? Because I cannot believe that I can come into the holy presence of God. I, who probably have sins that Uzzah had not even thought about, can come into the presence of God and be received and blessed rather than receiving what is my due. And why do I get to do that? All because of Christ. And because Christ has done that, the only reasonable response is worship. But not everyone does that. So notice at the end of the chapter, there's kind of an epilogue. 
And it's about blessing being received, blessing being relayed, and then blessing being rejected. So notice, as David now is approaching God properly, and there's blood sacrifice between him and the holy presence of God, David receives the blessing, and then he relays it on to others. Verse 18, right after the ark comes to rest, he does the final sacrifice, and then we're told this in verse 18. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. In the name of Yahweh, David blesses the people. Because when God is recognized and utterly holy, and when one willingly, as Tony said a few minutes ago, in humility says, I have no right to God's presence, but Jesus Christ has opened that way for me. When that happens, blessing abounds. And when a person in humility understands and responds and receives that, and you receive the bountiful blessing of God, there is an immediate desire to do what with the blessing? To pass it on. If you are blessed, why are you blessed? To be a blessing. And notice that's exactly what David does. He doesn't just say, hey, this is great. I got the blessing. It's good for me. It's good for my house. No, David says, I'm going to take this and I'm going to extend the blessing to the people. That, by the way, is why there's the cakes of dates and raisins. I won't put the verse back up there, but it's not some little bizarre thing. That's a blessing that is going out to all of the people to say, Yahweh is here. He is with you. He is blessing you. He's given to me. I am extending the blessing to you. And would that the chapter had ended there, but it doesn't. Because the fact is, not everybody wants the blessing of God, at least not on God's terms. And so notice, we get the story of, the, of Michal, the daughter of Saul, who despises true worship, and she rejects God's blessing for herself. In verse 16, we're told that she was observing what was going on. Notice verse 16 says, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, notice how it's always that phrase, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she thought it's good to worship God. What's her response? That's for David, not for me. Is that where she's at? Is she neutral? See, friends, ultimately, you're not neutral towards God and his presence and his blessing. You're either David leaping and dancing and responding, or somehow inside you start despising what's going on. And McCall, the daughter of Saul, despises David. There are always those who are repulsed by the message of God's holiness, the need for blood sacrifice, and a response of uninhibited true worship. Always. There are always those who are repulsed by that. Such people will mock and despise true worship, and they'll mock and despise those who offer it. So we need not be surprised by that. We need not be bothered by that. That is simply the way it is. The gospel, the cross, the message of that is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved is the wisdom and the power of God. So that's the first thing with McCall. And then notice when David shows up in verse 20, a really sad passage, we read David returned home to bless his household. David comes in full of the Holy Spirit. David the anointed king. David the forerunner of the Messiah comes in to bring blessing to the household. And he opens the front gate and he's walking in and he's ready to bless McCall and all of the people in his family and what happens to him? He doesn't even get his mouth open and Michal comes out and starts mocking him. Oh, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. Disrobing in the sight of his slave girls and of his servants like any vulgar fellow would. Now, notice here, once again, it's Michal, daughter of Saul. We're going to see that repeated a third time. She comes out and she mocks him. David's ready to extend blessing. She doesn't want him because she says, basically, if that's what this is about, I want nothing to do with it. That, that's disgusting what you're doing, David. 
I don't, I don't believe that. I don't believe that's what we ought to do. That is not the way the king ought to act. And David's cut short in his tracks, and he then responds to her pretty clearly with a little bit of anger and a little bit of snark in his voice. But I want you to see that actually there's a, there's a big thing here, and God judges what McCall does. Notice in verse 23, one last time we read, McCall, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Now, the message from this text is not that if a woman can't have children, she's under the curse of God. It has nothing to do with that. This is specifically about her. Notice what she's called every time we've read her name. What is she called? Michal, daughter of Saul. Born in the household of Saul. Raised in the household of Saul. And continuing to act just like Saul did. And Saul never came to terms with the holiness of God, with the humility that was required of him, with the need for him to simply obey. He never came to that place. And so she is a true daughter of Saul. And here's one of the saddest things. What if Michal had responded properly and been blessed who could one of her sons have become? King. And who could have come through that son? Messiah. But see, here's the end. This is the last chance for the house of Saul to sit on the throne of Israel. But it comes at the price of humbling yourself realizing the holiness of God, accepting that you have no right to this, and then rejoicing with utter abandoned joy when you realize that God offers it to you freely on his terms. And McCall says, if that's what it is, I don't want it. And so she dies childless because the line of Saul is going to end. No hope for it to continue. No hope for Messiah to come through them. Now, what does this mean for us? How do we handle a difficult text like this? We're going to ask one basic question, and then we're going to come to the Lord's table. The question is this. Do I embrace the holiness of God? Let's admit, this is a tough text, isn't it? I mean, this is not your favorite thing. Like somebody said, just tell me a little bit about your loving Jesus. Who's going to turn to 2 Samuel 6 and read this, right? I mean, this is tough. And it's particularly tough for us today. The message of God's holiness is an affront to sinful human beings. We don't like it, so we tend to reject it or alter it to try and make it easier for us. I read commentators who said, well, the ark was covered with gold and there was some kind of probably major static electricity. I wish I was kidding. You have to get a doctor to come up with an idea like that. It's like, but it says God was angry with him. So that doesn't make the text any better. They're doing anything to work around the holiness of God. And the modern American church has almost entirely lost an understanding of God's holiness. Many people today, we like God being a God of love. And you can ask people. I remember sitting in a thing one time with a group of pastors, and we, we were going through an exercise of using three words to describe the character of God. And what was most common was things like loving and kind and merciful, all of which is true except for it's also all of which is saying the same thing. Nothing about holiness. Nothing about God being a God of integrity, utterly unchanging. So in our, uh, in our catechism, actually in question seven, we say, what's God's character like? And the answer is God is perfect in holiness, love, and integrity. Because, friends, if you don't have all of that, you don't understand who God is. Is God a God of love? Absolutely. There would be no gospel. There would be no offering of Jesus Christ for us if God was not a God of love. But there would be no need for it if God was not a God of 
holiness. But because God is a holy God, then you and I can't just enter into his presence. And the other thing that happens is some people speak of this and say, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. Has Yahweh changed? Does he shift like you and I? See, I can look back and think, man, I can't believe I used to think that. God does not have that experience, friends. He doesn't look and say, you know, I was kind of having a bad hair day that day with Uzzah. In retrospect, that really wasn't the best thing to do. Nope. If it happened today, what would happen? Same response out of God. Same response. God is a God of integrity. He does not change. So the question is for you and I, do I embrace the holiness of God and thus have a true fear of God? And or do I try to remove the awful holiness of God? And, and awful, I'm using there in the old sense of A-W-E-F-U-L. It, it's full of awe. It's full of wonder. It's full of things, sometimes to be quite honest, we don't understand. Do I accept that and embrace that? Or do I try and work my way around that? And here's two questions that will answer whether I really do that or not. Because, of course, we want to say, well, yeah, I accept God's holiness. Well, do I let the law of God have full weight in revealing my sin? We love to talk about mercy, grace, kindness, forgiveness, being received by God. But do we let God's law have its full weight in showing who we are? Do I understand I'm no more holy than Uzzah was? I have no more right to reach out and touch the presence of God than Uzzah did. And the law of God has shown me that. Because if I don't do that, then I'm compromising the holiness of God. And there is much in the church today and in our culture that says you, you can't have that. I don't believe God's that way anymore. We used to think that, but I don't believe that anymore. Well, then we're in deep, deep trouble. The second part of that is, do I then believe and rejoice in the gospel as God's answer for my sin? Because see, if I remove holiness, then I don't really need all this stuff about blood sacrifice. Why do I really need the blood of Jesus? I mean, you know, I'm good enough. I'm no Hitler. I'm not those Nazis looking into the ark. I would be okay. God would probably say hi. Right? That's what we do. But if I understand holiness, I then understand, man, the gospel is good news. God has opened a way for me, and it is a way full of blessing. And if I do that, then do I rejoice and give myself to unrestrained worship? See, worship, both in the way I live my life, but also even when we gather as a church. It's not a question of, well, that's not really my personality. It has nothing to do with personality. It has to do with, have I seen that I am sinful and wicked and somehow God has received me in Christ? There's no way to see that and not have it produce a response in you and me. If the response is not there, I need to go back and ask myself, do I really understand this? Or do I kind of think God got a good deal by getting me on his team? Because he didn't, friends. So which way do we respond? Now, what this means, we're going to come down to the table. And this table that we come to shows us every aspect of God's character. Holiness, love, and integrity. Because God is so holy that all sin has to be judged. God's plan of salvation was not, well, I'll just kind of turn the other way and look like I didn't see it. That's not what the gospel is. No, the gospel is that he was going to judge all sin. But he's so loving, he bore the penalty in the person of his own son. He took the penalty himself. And God is so unchanging that when the only way to work salvation was for Jesus to bear the wrath of the Father, God did not say, well, let's come up with a plan B. There is no plan B. At the table, 
broken body and shed blood, we see the holiness, the love, and the unchanging, unflinching integrity of a holy, loving God. And so this table is an ever-present reminder to you and me of the holiness of God and that our only access to the holy God is through the shed blood of the Son. We begin and we end just like David did with shed blood, recognizing that Jesus has done this for us. So I want to encourage you today, come to this table, but come in the holy fear of God. Friends, when we reach out and we grab this bread, you are putting your hands on the ark of God. You're coming into contact with the holy presence of God. And if it was not for Jesus Christ, broken body and shed blood, you and I would get exactly what Uzzah got. You're no more worthy to reach in and touch it than I am or than Uzzah was. But as you come in that holy fear, rejoice, because when we reach out and we touch the presence of God, you're going to receive blessing rather than curse because of what Jesus Christ has done in our place. And if that doesn't produce worship in your heart, I have nothing else for you. Go home. Because that's as good of news as you can possibly imagine. The presence of God is open to you and me for blessing rather than curse. You do not have to be a member, I want to remind you, of our church. You do have to be a believer, which means you understand and accept all the things I've just been belaboring and talking about. That your only access is through Jesus Christ. If you believe that, please join with us. For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you that we can come to this holy table today based on who Jesus is and what he has done for us. We ask that you would meet us by your Holy Spirit to bring us blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. As you get the elements, they're going to distribute them to you. As you get the elements, please hold on to them. If you want gluten-free, if you raise your hand, we will bring you gluten-free bread. Other than that, I would encourage you, as you get the elements and hold on to them, consider the holiness of God and the love of God and the integrity of God that we see in this table. Father, you are the holy God, and your purity is beyond our comprehension. We take sin so lightly, and we reduce the weight of your holiness, acting as if our sin is of no consequence, easily forgiven, and without cost. But this bread reminds us of the fearful price of our sin, breaking and crushing the body of the Holy Son of God. You are so unalterably holy and loving that your Son was pierced and crushed for our sin, bearing your full wrath so that we might enter your presence and not be consumed. In taking this bread, we acknowledge that you are holy and we are not that we deserve wrath, but it was born by Jesus. And so we give you thanks for your mercy and your grace, and that through Jesus, mercy has triumphed over judgment. Thanks be to God. Take and eat. Lord Jesus, you are the eternal, perfect 
Holy Son of God. In your full humanity, you were perfect in every way, obeying the law and thus fully able to enter the Father's presence. And yet, you knew that without the shedding of blood, we could never be forgiven. So you offered yourself, pouring out your blood for us and our sins. In taking this cup, we acknowledge that your blood is the only means of forgiveness, enabling us to enter the holy presence of God, receiving blessing rather than the death that we deserve. And so we stretch forth our hands to touch the very mercy seat of the ark of the presence of God, knowing that because of your blood, we have been made holy once and for all. Thanks be to God for the blood of Jesus Christ. Take and drink. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that this day we have entered your very presence and that our hands have touched the very word of life. But unlike Uzzah, we have not been consumed because our sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus. Thanks be to God for our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, send us forth now by your Holy Spirit with hearts full of worship, mouths full of the gospel, hands full of holiness. May we go forth and spread your blessing everywhere we go this week. We ask this to the glory of the Father, in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And God's people say, Amen. Let's stand together and I'll do a word of benediction out of uh, the Psalms, the book that is largely written by David. Receive now the blessing of God. May God our Savior help you for the glory of his name. May he deliver you and forgive your sins for his name's sake. Go forth blessed and be a blessing. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.